Closer Look is a public affairs presentation. Views and opinions of the guests don't always reflect the views of the ministry, and some topics aren't suitable for children. K-Love is committed to community. Closer Look continues with a look at local agencies, events, and issues. I'm Becky Hansen. This is Closer Look. My guest today is Stephen Glaude, President and CEO of CNHED, Coalition for Nonprofit Housing and Economic Development in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Closer Look, Stephen. So nice of you to have me. Thank you for having an interest in these issues. This is a really important topic for Washington, D.C., and I'm really excited to hear your answers. To start us off, what happens to a community if housing and economic development aren't a priority? Well, typically, there is a lot of commercial abandonment that usually follows by residential displacement. And I think it's important to recognize that community development and affordable housing work very much hand in hand and that it has to be intentional efforts by every sector, intentional by the government, intentional by the investment community, and then intentional by community stakeholders to ensure that there is both a platform of affordability for residents, but also access to services, goods, and entrepreneurial opportunities, which is really what makes up the fabric of community development. So CNHED is a nonprofit and a coalition. What's the history of the group? The organization is 20 years old. It actually was created with the merging um, of two existing coalitions uh, 20 years ago. There was the Coalition for Housing and the Coalition for Economic Development. And what the leaders of both organizations realized was that they were working in similar communities on similar issues with similar populations, and that it made sense to coordinate economic development activity with affordable housing activity. So that is what led to the creation of the Coalition for Nonprofit Housing and Economic Development. We're an umbrella group that works with 100 nonprofits in the district and 65 mission-driven for-profits to foster just and equitable development in the District of Columbia. And just like you said, they they work hand in hand. So it's really good that the the two coalitions came together. Who is part of the coalition? You said they're nonprofits. What what kind of nonprofits? Really the entire spectrum. So we have nonprofits who I would say our mainstay organizations are organizations that work in affordable housing, human service provision, small business and community economic development make up the majority of the organizations, but we really represent the continuum of nonprofit service providers and developers in the district. We're kind of soup to nuts. We're everything from those who engage and organize and educate residents to those who provide essential human services, ranging from food services to homelessness services, and those who do actual affordable housing development, as well as those who work on entrepreneurship, workforce development, and small business development. What's the ultimate goal? What do you hope to achieve working together? The District of Columbia is an extremely challenging economic market. Our real estate values have 
skyrocketed as a result of the economic boom that the district has experienced over the last 15 years. And as a result, it, the pressures for people to be able to afford to stay in the district have just intensified over the last 15 to 20 years. And so the primary purpose of our members is largely to ensure a good quality of life, but it's really to platform affordability for long-term residents, for diverse populations, for lower income populations. And our work is really centered around building the political will in the city to publicly invest in affordability and programs and interventions and solutions that help particularly lower income populations. Without this intentional work, if we just let the districts succumb to market forces, we would be a city of the very rich and the very poor. The rich who could afford to be here and the poor who are heavily subsidized to be here, but there literally would not be an upper lower in class population or a lower middle class population. We largely have a city of very wealthy and very poor people. And of course, we aspire for a better diversity in the city than that. If you're just tuning in, I'm Becky Hansen, and this is Closer Look. My guest today is Stephen Glaude, President and CEO of CNHED, Coalition for Nonprofit Housing and Economic Development in Washington, D.C. Stephen, I know the conversations I've had in Washington, D.C., oftentimes the word gentrification comes up. Could you touch on that? Gentrification is, of course, by everyone's understanding, this kind of double-edged sword. And on one hand, it represents an opportunity to improve neighborhoods residentially and commercially, to provide a better access to services and goods, to foster the, the incoming of new residents and more diverse residents on the good side. So on the good side, gentrification improves the neighborhood. But on the bad side, it increases real estate values. It takes affordability out of reach of many residents. And it generally re results in undesirable displacement. So it, the question with gentrification is how do you have balanced and equitable gentrification where neighborhoods are being improved, roads are being repaired, commercial strips are being enhanced, New businesses are being located, giving residents better access to services and goods without displacing long-term residents and diverse residents and lower-income residents. And gentrification is a huge challenge in the, in the district. The district really aspires to being a world-class city. And so with that come necessary improvements, enhanced housing, um, landscape-changing projects like new waterfront developments, new baseball stadiums, all of which attract outsiders from um, other areas. At the same time, there has to be intentionality to preserve both affordability and opportunity for existing residents. What would you say are the biggest issues or challenges that you face? Market forces are probably the strongest thing. I mean, the average rent in the District of Columbia uh, is high compared to most other major cities. Um, the average cost of a home in D.C. is about $875,000, which is out of reach of many people. But as, as we all know how capitalism works, if it can sell high, it's going to sell high. If, if we can attract higher tax bracket residents through the development that we do and the housing that we build just to, to support district revenues, 
we're going to move in that direction. I mean, our city leaders have an obligation to to make sure that financial stability is a core value of leading our city. And that's why advocates like ourselves have to strike that balance in reminding the city and city leaders that this growth, while great, has to also be balanced with subsidies that keep a diversity of resident and a diversity of population within the reach of the city. I mean, I think it really comes down to what is the vision that we who lead in the city have for our city? And that vision should be one of diversity, one of equity, one of fairness, and one of investment for those who may not have the same education, skill development, or economic opportunities that others do. More inclusive. Exactly. How would you say you see the imbalance right now? Well, I I have to give my organization, and I don't mean myself personally, but my organization, a lot of credit for keeping the balance better than it is in most places. And I'll give specific examples. About 10 years ago, our leadership noticed that we had an emerging affordable housing crisis in the district. At that time, there were no newspaper articles on affordable housing. There were no council hearings. There were no, no, no new legislative proposals. Nobody ran for office locally with affordable housing as one of their primary uh, campaign promises. But today, as a result of a campaign we launched about 10 years ago, the Housing for All campaign, we launched that campaign with the intention of raising public awareness, building political will to publicly invest, and getting our housing production trust fund, which is the primary vehicle that local governments use to finance affordable housing to $100 million, at least $100 million annually. And our campaign succeeded wildly. Now, a month doesn't go by without a Washington Post article about affordable housing. Council, on average, now does 35 pieces of housing-related legislation annually. Our Housing Production Trust Fund has exceeded, been at or exceeded $100 million seven of the last eight years. Uh, the council just yesterday approved $190 million in the Housing Production Trust Fund. The current mayor ran for office uh, her first term with a pledge of putting $100 million each year of her first term in that fund, and she did it. And she has now entered her second term with affordable housing as a primary administration focus. She just announced goals that by 2025, she hopes to produce 36,000 new units of housing with 12,000 of those units being affordable. So I, I think that the, the challenge is still here because market forces are still great. But I think we have achieved what we set out to do 10 years ago, which is to raise awareness, build political will to publicly invest and to platform investments at a respectable level. So the battle rages on and the challenges never stop. I mean, there are other forces that we have to counter that are purely profit-driven around housing. And that's why it's important to have strong advocate voices and strong resident engagement in speaking on behalf of that balance and that fairness that is needed if we're going to have a world-class city as we broadly define it by being inclusive and diverse. Thanks for joining us. I'm Becky Hansen, and this is Closer Look. My special guest today is Stephen Glaudet, President and CEO of CNHED, 
the Coalition for Nonprofit Housing and Economic Development. You can find the organization online at cnhed.org or reach them by phone at 202-745-0902. Stephen, just because we're in this COVID season right now, uh, I thought I should ask, how have you seen the virus affect the community and the work that you're doing? I think like most places on this planet right now, and certainly most cities in America, there's been a major disruption in life as we know it. It's probably the best way that I can put it. And every way of living and doing business has been in some way disrupted. And in most cases, notable ways. I think I'm very proud of our city. I'm very proud of our mayor. I'm very proud of our city council. I'm very proud of our advocate community. We pivoted amazingly fast when COVID first happened. Immediately, there was a focus on vulnerable populations by our mayor and our city leaders. Our council passed emergency legislation to prevent evictions, to provide relief to landlords, and do a host of other things that were immediate respondents to what were the most pressing vulnerabilities that citizens faced. Shortly after we pivoted with emergency measures, we began to focus on recovery. Our organization was one of a myriad of stakeholders of leaders in the city to populate a reopen DC task force. And in that work we did in the mayor's reopen DC task force, we focused on the kind of conditions that we were going to have to address as a city if the city was going to reopen. Of course, a lot of that has been delayed because of the extended quarantine that ultimately our city leaders chose to enact. But some of the disruptions are really just really exposing the inequities that already existed. If you look at who's most exposed, who's most vulnerable, it's the people who've always been most vulnerable, people who didn't have stable housing, people who had fragile income streams, people who had sketchy employment. Those are the people who are most impacted. But I'm really I'm really proud. I mean, philanthropy in D.C. responded quickly. An emergency fund was stood up very fast. Our financial institutions adjusted to restructure loan repayment terms. I mean, our federal government came in with uh, payroll protection and other things. And so this is where kind of, frankly, America was at its best in many ways. I'd like to encourage people to go to the website, which again is cnhed.org. There's an awful lot of information there. There are a number of working groups and committee sessions and really too many to list right here. Would you highlight a few of those for us and the benefit that their effort brings to the community? Part of our operating philosophy is, is a really simple thing, which is closest to the problem, closest to the solution. So our working groups are designed to convene people on a monthly basis to talk about everything that is impacting the issue that we're discussing. So on the housing side, we have a tenant opportunity to purchase working group, a home ownership working group, and some other working groups. And we take practitioners who are running programs, who are managing buildings, who are constructing projects, uh, who are working with residents. And we talk about everything, existing programs, new legislative proposals, ideas that need to be advanced. 
And we fashioned that into both a public policy, a legislative, and a budget agenda for that year. So that year, we might be working on rent control, for example. And there could be a proposal by the council, well, maybe it's time to, to renew rent control, which expires every 20 years or 40 years or whatever the case may be. Well, we spend months discussing what should a renewed rent control look like in the District of Columbia. And then we all go to the council and testify, and we have a high impact on the decisions that our city leaders make, whether it's renewing an expiring covenant or introducing a new piece of legislation or launching a new program. And so the working groups, we have two primary committees, the housing committee and an economic development committee. And then there are working groups under those committees. And it's in those working groups where they really tear up the tile off the floor. They really get under the hood of the car, if you will. And by the time we emerge, we emerge, we have a guiding principle that if we reach consensus, then that becomes the organization's position. If no consensus can be reached, we encourage individual members to take their own position with city leaders and people pay attention to whether or not we take a position or not on an issue. Because if we don't take a position, they know that practitioners are divided about a particular issue. So everyone works hard to get consensus because they want our voice in the conversation. Uh, and that's how we, we, we're structured. We are a practitioner-driven organization based on the notion that these people who run these programs every day really know what works and what doesn't work, what helps, what doesn't help. And our city leaders are keenly attuned. I mean, yesterday, the council had its final budget support hearing to close out the budget process for this year. And during the course of their deliberations, three or four times, they said, well, CNHED thinks we should do, or CNHED reports that, or CNHED released a study that says, and it's great when they know that they're standing behind what practitioners think as they pass laws and pass budgets. A large part of what you do is education. How do you educate? We have a monthly meeting with our membership. We have 180 members, about 100 nonprofits, 65 mission-driven for-profits, and then some other professionals who are service providers to the field. Every month we convene our members and we expose them to training, opinion leaders, new programs that are being initiated within the city, updates on things that are happening with financial institutions or philanthropy or within government. And then we also have specialized trainings throughout the year. Sometimes we do programs that result in a higher level of certification in a particular service area or industry. And we're always looking for better ways to inform the members, but we also promote trainings that are being offered by others. So our newsletter is an information, it's a wealth of information about what everyone is doing. So not just what we do, but what others in the field are doing. And so we are constantly pointing our members to capacity building and training and certification programs. Do you always need more volunteers or nonprofit groups to be involved? Absolutely. We operate a VISTA program, so we're placing VISTAs with some of our members around the city. Uh, we encourage people to volunteer. I mean, I personally operate on the notion that every every citizen should volunteer somewhere. I'm, I serve on about five different board of directors as a volunteer. Uh, there are other things that I do 
where I just volunteer personally just to lend my time and talent. But I also think that volunteering is a great way to expose. And I would I would tell young people in particular to to volunteer because as you're trying to figure out your career, volunteering gives young people an exposure to bodies of work that might inform them about what their future career paths might want to be. And I always say, if you can learn what you don't know, not at the expense of your own career, <laughs> do it as a volunteer. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good way to save yourself time and pain and even perhaps a, a quitting a job or being fired from a job because you've exposed yourself to uh, work. A lot of people think they want to do direct service. And, and then once they see what direct service is, they're like, no, I really want to do policy. And then once you do policy, I don't want to do policy. I want to do administration. Volunteering can give you an exposure to those bodies of work in ways that, um, like I said, can inform your career choices and direction. That's some great advice. As we're winding down the interview, I thought we might close with a success story. Do you have a success story you can share with us? There's so many. So one success story that I would share is of a woman that works with us. She's a caterer. She's an African-American-owned caterer in the District of Columbia. And she used to work for Olive Garden. And she designed their Olive to Go program, which is now worldwide. But she designed it as a demonstration project in one of our neighboring counties. And after doing it for a while and working endless hours, she decided to go come off on her own and do her own catering. And we hired her one month to do one of our monthly meetings, and we fell in love with her. And in the process of our anchor institution work, where we're working with universities and hospitals, catering is one of the procurements we've encouraged local universities and hospitals to utilize. So first we put... Pinky, it's called Pinky's Eats. We put her on Georgetown University's campus. They fell in love with it. Then we put her on one of our area hospitals campus and they fell in love with her. During COVID, catering services, you know, you talked about how has COVID impacted. A couple of the areas that have been so severely impacted is catering and restaurants. I mean, in many ways, we are back to normal with a lot of stuff. Like if you need to go to a hardware store, now you can go to a hardware store. If you need to go buy food, you can buy food. If you need to get your clothes clean, but catering services and restaurants are still severely impacted because of social distancing and, and more. And in the midst of COVID, one of the things that we realized was that, as I had said before, our hospital's food supply was being disrupted. So we got pinky uh, providing free meals to area hospitals. Well, in the midst of it all, one of our anchor partners is J.P. Morgan Chase. And J.P. Morgan Chase got to know Pinky. Now, Pinky lives in one of our poorest wards in the city, one of our wards most noted for unemployment, crime, and so forth. We used to work for Olive Garden. It's kind of emerged in her. And Pinky, because of her work and because of her tenacity, was just shot in a global J.P. Morgan commercial talking about the importance of investing in minority businesses and minority entrepreneurs. And so for me, that's a great success story from the work that we're doing, the pivoting during COVID and our focus on inclusion and racial equity, 
what was a little fledgling Ward 7 caterer is now the subject of a global J.P. Morgan commercial and on her way to great growth and success. So that's one of the success stories that comes to mind from the work that we do. That's a great success story and a great way to wind down the interview. I'd like to thank my guest, Stephen Glaude, President and CEO of CNHED, Coalition for Nonprofit Housing and Economic Development in Washington, D.C. For more information about CNHED, you can also email us at closerlook at klove.com. That's closerlook at klove.com. For Closer Look, I'm Becky Hansen. This has been Klove Closer Look. Find us online at klove.com.